invite you to take your pew Bibles out and turn to the book of Daniel to page 890 where we'll be looking at Daniel 11. There's going to be a certain section there that we're going to read. We're not going to read the entire chapter. But let me just say this. The the closing three chapters of Daniel... You'll notice I skipped chapter 10 in our series. But Daniel chapter 10 kind of serves as a good context for what we'll be reading in Daniel 11. The the closing three chapters, 10, 11, and 12, really form uh, a single vision of Daniel that he has. And it brings the book to a very fitting climax. And with his final vision that he's given, the veil of spiritual matters is, is kind of paved open for him, and he's getting a peek into what is going on in the spiritual realm that is behind uh, the enemy, that is behind kingdoms of this world. And the entirety of Daniel chapter 10, where he's given this vision of a rather frightening angel who's uh, letting him know these things, um, letting him know the, the nature of spiritual conflict taking place in the heavenly realms, In Daniel chapter 11, verses 2, all the way through 45 is a rather lengthy uh, discourse, vision given to Daniel, where he's given very particular, very specific insight into earthly conflicts that are taking, that will take place. And if you take time to, to study this vision that Daniel has given, It is mind-boggling when it comes to the accuracy of this vision that he is given. And it's a vision given regarding two nations that came out of the Greek Empire. I made reference to them a few weeks ago. We have the Ptolemies and we have the Seleucids, who after Alexander the Great died, were two warring factions of the Greek Empire that, for lack of a better term, hated each other. And one was in the north and one was in the south. Uh, the south. The north was the Seleucids in Syria. The Ptolemies were in the south in Egypt. And all through Daniel's prophecy in chapter 11, we're getting a play-by-play, prophetically speaking, in visionary details, what these two kingdoms are about and what they're doing. Um, so what we're looking at this morning in verses 29 through Uh, 35 in chapter 11, we've come to a section of chapter 11 where uh, Antiochus IV, Epiphanes is his name, a very uh, tyrannical leader of the Seleucid dynasty, is making his way down to Egypt to further his campaign against the Egyptians, which previously he had been victorious in. But as verse 29 suggests, this time things are going to be a little different and it's going to lead to a very devastating period of time for the Jews, God's people in the promised land. So turn with me now in Daniel chapter 11, starting in verse 29. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim, that is Rome, shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. 
and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive shall time. Thus far, the reading of God's word this morning, let's pray for his illumination on it. God of Jesus Christ, we pray this morning that you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ, so that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Who here has ever heard the term litmus test? All right. Interesting history regarding that. In the 14th century, scientists discovered that litmus, which is a mixture of colored organic compounds obtained from lichen, turns red in acid solutions, and it turns blue in alkaline solutions. And so it can be used as this acid base indicator. Six centuries later, people began using litmus test figuratively. It can now refer to any single factor that establishes the true character of something or causes it to be assigned to one category or another. Often it refers uh, to something such as an opinion about a political or moral issue that is used to make a judgment about whether someone or something is acceptable or not. That's all from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary for your uh, knowledge there. When thinking of the character of the Christian life, what would you say is the litmus test for Christians, for defining the life of Christians? I think it goes without saying that the the ultimate litmus test for anyone who is truly in Christ is the righteousness of Christ deposited on that person's account, covered by the blood of Jesus. But what external characteristics, what on the outside of a Christian that are on display serves as a kind of a test that really shows decisively that one is truly a believer? Well, there are many as the Apostle Paul clearly articulates all throughout his epistles. And one of them is persecution. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Do not be surprised by persecution. Now, not every single Christian who has lived through history has experienced Uh, violent persecution, but trials thrust upon a Christian by the world 
happen to everyone. And they test us as they should, as God said they would. And as it relates to this message, though, is this. Oppression against those who profess to be believers of Christ could very well be a means of purging the ranks of God, the ranks of God's people. If we think about the numbers of those who have been persecuted and killed for their faith in recent years, the results would be absolutely staggering. The pressure put on innocent lives, it encapsulates both the sadness and righteous anger felt by those in the covenant community, but also the beauty of those who stood and uh, stood their ground and professed Christ with their last few breaths of life on this unglorified earth. But what about those who abandon their faith in the face of such atrocities committed against them and their people? It could be said that persecution really is God's vetting process to determine who is faithful to him. Persecution in all shapes and forms throughout the ages, it besieges God's people and it serves as a test for faithfulness in the covenant community. And we gain a a better understanding of that theme through the words of the prophet Daniel in our text this morning in the context of these violent acts perpetrated against them by the king of the north. And in Daniel 11, 29 through 35, our text this morning, the author shows his audience that the abominable acts of the king in question and his His oppressiveness against the people of God determines who's either going to abandon the Holy Covenant or remain faithful in their commitment to God. In our text, we're going to see this this method that the king uses against the covenant people. We'll see, too, the, the character of those who commit apostasy and forsake the covenant And then we're going to see the character of those who truly remain faithful in such trying times in order that we may see a real good distinction between these two people groups. And then we'll uh, apply all of this today as the church under various degrees of anti-Christian persecution and our Christian response to it. We now turn to the matters of Antiochus' tyrannical character and acts of persecution. So upon his return to the north, he became enraged and he took action against the Holy Covenant. This word in Hebrew for enraged, it connotes the idea of being uh, very angry with anyone, often with this added idea of punishment. I am very angry, so I'm going to punish you because I am angry. That's kind of a childish way of thinking of Antiochus's personality at this point. He's indignant against the people of the covenant. Um, Hardly an expression of his personal feelings because of the humiliation he felt at Rome, kicking him out of Egypt. No, there's something greater going on here because of his actions against his victims. His rage certainly includes punishment for those who do not follow him, um, separating the faithful from those who are easily tempted to fall into his good graces as he stares them down with fear. Furthermore, there there appears to be no uh, connection between his loss with Egypt and his being judgmental against the Holy Covenant. If Antiochus sought to vent his spite on the Jews 
because he was just embarrassed about what happened to him elsewhere? Why just the Jews then? Why did he concentrate so heavily upon this ethnic people group in history? What we're seeing is that Antiochus had a very particular hostile nature against the holy people of God. The holy covenant, our text says. The very essence of the relationship between Yahweh and his people. This is what Antiochus is against. And his achievements are going to come at a very rapid and devastating pace as the verses of this passage pick up. Well, subsequent to his entrance back into Israel, we read that forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the burnt offering. And what will they do? They will set up the abomination that makes desolate, or as other translations put it, the abomination of desolation. This profaning of the holy temple this place of spiritual strength by an outsider would have been a high offense to the people of Israel. The essence of his evil just explodes into this very place where the spirituality of the covenant people was held. This word to profane literally in the Hebrew form found in our text, means to be a profaning of things counted holy, not being open to public access. This is how holy this temple is. To profane an institution so holy that it's not open to the public would have been an act of the most utmost evil in the eyes of Israel. Moreover, in 167 B.C., Antiochus issued an edict which forced the Jews in Judea to adopt Hellenism. Hellenism is Greek culture. He wants them to completely unidentify with their Jewishness. Here is my Greek culture. This is you now, and I'm going to oppress you into becoming this. And he later outlawed all Jewish religious practices. He took away the regular burnt Offering This regular sacrifice would have been called the tamid, otherwise known as uh, the constant whole burnt offering. According to Exodus 29, this offering was made twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening, and it consisted of a lamb with fine flour, oil, and wine. One commentator makes a fine point. He says that the tamid, this constant burnt offering, was the most important regular part of regular worship. And that under the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes, the discontinuation of this sacrifice has been viewed as the greatest calamity. We're reminded of Antiochus's actions up to this point. Very brutal acts of persecution aimed at the very core of what it meant to be a Jew at this time in Jerusalem. Harsh measures were introduced to completely erase the faith of Judaism. The sacrificial system completely dismantled, burnt offerings and other sacrifices proscribed, get rid of them. So too was circumcision, and the keeping of the Torah was considered a felony. In other words, the faith of the Hebrew people came under 
the most concerted and severe attack in its long history. This is unprecedented up until this point. Beyond Babylon exiling the Jews here at this point, this is unprecedented. The capstone that would seem to be the tip of the iceberg, however, was Antiochus's profanation and religious attack of the people of Israel, setting up the abomination of desolation. This would have been a, uh, an ultimate insult. We think of all the things that I just mentioned that were an insult to uh, the people of God. The setting up the abomination of desolation was the peak of all of these things. For, for, for those who uh, have a monotheistic belief in one God, setting something like this up was very hostile to them. It could either have been a statue of Zeus, uh, but more likely it refers to a ritual on a pagan altar in contrast with the proper use of God's altar. So a ritual sacrifice that replaces the proper sacrifice. Such an abomination committed by Antiochus uh, would have probably seen him slaughter a pig and sacrifice it upon the pagan altar in the presence of the Jews in the temple. What an abomination in the sight of these people. And to make another fine point on this very word, desolation, in our text, um, it's not a description of of what we could call possession. It's really not the abomination of desolation. What this is, it's not qualifying this as a horrific act, even though it is, but rather it's referring to Antiochus as the desolator. You could almost translate this not as the abomination of desolation, but the abomination of the desolator. This is an egregious sin against God so horribly that it could be said that this was an abomination that was literally an extension of Antiochus himself. This is who he is in contrast to God's people. This is the persecution of Judaism in this period of redemptive history. So we can see his acts of profaning the religion of God's people then, providing this context now where the faith of these covenant people, you can only imagine, was tested because of this persecution, targeted so specifically at their hearts where they had to make a decision regarding their religious lives and devotion to God. It is this very persecution that will determine who the faithful are, identified in covenant language as the people who know their God, and the wicked who abandon or forsake the covenant in times of persecution. We're going to look at them first. Well, there's various adjectives in this passage that are used to describe those who are easily uh, swayed by the person of Antiochus. We read in verse 30, they're called those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Uh, verse 32, those who violate the covenant. And uh, those who are brought to apostasy by smooth talk. Brought to apostasy by flattery. In verse 30, we read that Antiochus will pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. What he's doing is he's using his power of discernment of the mind. And he's looking. He is seeing who amongst them would be loyal to him and his cause. Now, these would have already been those whose 
Hearts would have been a heart of stone. These are those who already would have forsaken God and turned from his law. The thought is that Antiochus would seek out such people for support in his attempt to stamp out observance of the Mosaic ceremonies. The leader among this group was the apostate high priest Menelaus. He gave his full cooperation to Antiochus after his looting of the temple the previous year. The hearts and the minds of these members in the church community were so hardened, they were exposed as a group of people amongst the community of Israel who had, under pressure from Antiochus, totally abandoned their ties in consent in favor of being liaisons with the enemy. Those who violate the covenant, those who who act wickedly, is is a clear distinguishing marker between those who Antiochus seduced from those who remained loyal to Yahweh, their covenant Lord. With the faith of these covenant violators weakened, they are then further corrupted by Antiochus's smooth words, his flattery, so to speak, committing apostasy in the process. What is this flattery exactly? It has this meaning to pollute, to profane, to make godless, to cause to be defiled. This language of polluting is peculiar. The people of God pollute themselves by their sin. Ezekiel 20 verse 7 says, Cast away the detestable things your eyes feast on, every one of you, and do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Uncleanness is what we're looking at here. Uncleanness, one theologian says, uh, being related to the service of Jehovah God is associated with ethical behavioral sin, what you do externally to others around you. These are uh, moral atrocities committed by one against God himself, breaking his law, committing vile ugly transgressions in relation to Antiochus's abominations, replacing the God-given ritual of sacrifice, these covenant violators are inherently polluting their very own service to God. It's disgusting now. And they do this by apostatizing through this venue of Antiochus's smooth, insincere flattery marking themselves as enemies of God and against the people who know their God, the wise ones amongst them. Well, we all know what pollution does, right? It intrudes into what was once beautiful on the outside appearing, but paints it into a color that turns it into a monstrosity. These are the ones who flee the covenant in their sin, swept away by the guiles of flattery and smooth talk. They are monsters now. Persecution does indeed, uh, so to speak, thin the herd. It weeds out the unfaithful. And that is what is happening. Who is the second category of people then? We have... In verse 32, 
If you look there, the people who know their God. These are Jews who remain faithful to the Lord by persisting in their obedience to the law of Moses and refusing to compromise in their faith. Refusing to compromise and engage in false worship. People who know their God. What does it mean to know God in this context here under persecution? It's not just a mental assent to the existence of God. Just knowing that he's out there. Just knowing that he exists. No, it means more than that. In certain texts, to know God can be read in the sense of recognition of covenant requirements as binding. Seeing God's law, knowing that it needs to be obeyed, and obeying it, and doing it. And it results in appropriate behavior. This is what it means in this text, to know their God. In other words, to know God in this way is to obey him, and to obey his commandments. You can see the sharp contrast in this text between those who violate the covenant and those who know their God. And those who know their God, our text says, stand firm. They stand firm, and what does it say after that? They take action. Now, again, in the context of this text and in the context of this history, For them to take action was probably military action. If you've heard of the Maccabean Revolt, this is what the um, celebration of Hanukkah recognizes. The Maccabees revolted against Antiochus and his forces and ultimately were triumphant and rededicated the temple. In other words, these are very devout Jews who faced oppression from not only the the Antiochus's forces, but they faced oppression from their own kinsmen, people they used to identify with, their very neighbors who share an ethnicity with. A further narrower description of these faithful, if you look in verse 33, are those who are wise. These are those who have, you could say, insight who will teach, instruct, and make many understand during the time of persecution. There is a very beautiful Hebrew word that describes such people in this text. They're called the masculine. It's a gorgeous word. Masculine. It means the ones who are wise. One person said that in describing who these people are, He says this, these are conservative leaders who possess the wisdom which consists in odd submission to Yahweh. That understanding which has reflected deeply on his ways in history. And that insight which perceives how his cause will ultimately triumph. These are those who read God's word and cannot help but submit themselves to their God in awe. And they become wise for doing so and are able to stand firm under pressure. The very fact that they will instruct many demonstrates that there is a vast majority 
of the congregation of the faithful still present in these trying times. And when these masculine, these wise ones fall, it's with a sense of martyrdom, especially given the language of death by sword and by flame. Their fall, though, serves a good purpose. In such a time of persecutions, men's souls are tried, and only the purest motives are going to be acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. This comes to bear in verse 35 when we read that the masculine fall or stumble. It says this, that they may be refined, purified, and made white. God's people being refined by trial. To be made white, purified, metaphorically speaking, to purge, to cleanse from the filthiness of sins. Such language evokes this idea of very clear distinction now between those who are truly faithful to God and those who are willing to compromise their faith and commit apostasy in the face of oppression. These are certainly men and women who will be refined and purified with an eye to the true end that God has appointed for a time in the future, and that's resurrection, which we'll look at next time on Easter Sunday in Daniel 12. So we have the faithful, and we have the faithless in times of trial. Faithful and faithless. Where do you find yourself this morning? We're only kidding ourselves if we thought the people of the Old Testament went through the hardest trials. No, they continue this day in varying degree. The spirit of Antiochus is alive and well in this day and age. In various anti-Christian manifestations, he is just one type of many more that were to come after him. Most of you have probably heard of the beast of Revelation. Well, when we read about that, we can typically isolate that beast to mean one particular individual at the end of time. I would encourage you to, uh, perhaps your own study of the book of Revelation, to see this beast in a symbolic way for all individual and collective satanically inspired uh, opposition to Jesus and his people. It is anything and everything, whether a person, a principle, or a power, utilized by the enemy to deceive and destroy the influence in advance of the kingdom of God. The Apostle John says that Antichrist is already here. The spirit of Antichrist, present in the world, that puts pressure on God's people. Antiochus used pagan Greek culture and the sword to intimidate God's people, and it thinned the herd. Throughout history, we've seen persecution by the sword of the Roman Empire afterwards, even. We've seen the Arian heresy in the 4th century. We can see other principles at work throughout history that have split the church, that have called the faithless out from them. The late medieval Roman Catholic papacy, 
modern Protestant liberalism, Marxism, radical feminism, the pro-choice movement and abortion of innocent babies, secular evolutionary Darwinism in the 21st century, radical Islamic fundamentalism, very angry atheists, and what we see most prevalently today, the sexual revolution and the promotion and celebration of sexual sin, even in the Christian community. While we're to see this, these beasts, so to speak, of revelation as a composite figure manifest throughout history, I do believe there's warrant in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians for a culmination of all anti-Christian types throughout history to manifest in one individual who will persecute the church. And in Paul's letter, we read of the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2, who will appear on the world stage just prior to Christ's second coming. But Paul points out that before his coming, there is to be an event that takes place here on earth in history before the revealing of this man. He calls it the rebellion. What is the rebellion? Well, it's much just like what we saw in our text. Religious defection and a spiritual falling away from the faith on a global scale. In other words, what Paul has in view here is a future global apostasy happening within the Christian community. And when this final Antichrist figure arises, Paul says he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Antiochus' last name is, that he gave to himself was Epiphanes. And in Greek, it means God manifest. I am God, he is saying. And what Paul is saying is that in God's ordaining providence that has yet to be, there is going to come a particular individual who is the culmination of all anti-Christs throughout history in one man who will seat himself in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Why is this man so deceiving? Because this language of his seating himself in the temple of God is language saying that he is seating himself in the church itself. That's why he's so deceiving. He's right in the middle of the covenant community, the church. And in that season of the last few years of activity on earth, he is going to do just as Antiochus did. Bring some in the church to apostasy by the flattering tongue of himself, who does all these things, as Paul says, through the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That is to say, these will be those who do not know their God. Do you know God this morning? Do you bring yourself in odd submission to the Lord? Do you seek to love him 
and obey his commands? Do you study his word? Do you not only just study his word, of course, but fully believe that scripture is the very word of God himself? Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, equipping you to hold fast, to stand firm, and to take action as the church militant against darkness. Can you say that about yourself this morning? If you struggle coming up with an answer, do not be afraid. Christ is the one who desires us to come to him in faith and repentance. And when we do, his spirit assures us that we will not fall away when the oppression comes. And that he gives us the boldness to hold fast and to be just like the masculine, to be just like the wise ones, and participate in suffering, which leads to purification and refinement. Should our Lord tarry, and we don't engage in the final persecution of the church, that doesn't mean you're never going to experience it in some way or another, today even, or tomorrow. But who are we encouraged to put our trust in? Who did, who did the masculine put their trust in? I think we can see an interesting connection between these wise ones of Daniel 11 and the suffering servant of Isaiah, who we would see as Christ himself. Isaiah 52, 13 says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Isaiah 53.11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be right, accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. In Christ's suffering and death, he made many accounted as righteous, and the many in turn seek to proclaim that good news to others that they too may know their God. The masculine of Daniel 11, they looked ahead to Christ, to the suffering servant, and found meaning in their persecution and in their suffering. The persecution of Antiochus in due course served God's purpose in refining those who faithfully adhered to his promises of deliverance in the Messiah. So that by their actions, many could continue to look for the future consolation of Israel, which came in Jesus Christ. Just as we today look for the consolation of the world as we anticipate Christ's second coming. And yet we wait. And while we wait, the world hates us. And the faithless among God's people are called out one by one. For those who remain faithful, God's eye does not stray from those he loves. God's eye is upon the righteous to support them under trial. And though we're regarded as sheep 
on their way to the slaughter, we are called to rejoice even in our trials, knowing that we belong to God and nothing can separate us from his love for us in Christ Jesus. Amen. You pray with me. We praise you, Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. We ask that what we do, how we live, and the way we love may increasingly become a worthy response. Help us not to fear, even though at times we do, but Lord, in your grace, sustain us. Help us to stand firm in times of trial and persecution, whatever degree they come against us. Grant us the assurance that we do, in fact, belong to Jesus Christ in these times. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.